the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We know that from Scripture, we are made in the very image of God and that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And so you look at these connections and wonder to yourself just how deep do they go? And by that, I mean, when we talk about our relationship with God, we certainly understand it. We relate to it on the spiritual plane. But does it go deeper than that? Journalist Rob Mole joins us now. He's written a new book called What Your Body Knows About God, How We Are Designed to Connect, Serve, and Thrive. He has written extensively on this topic. Um, particularly related to health and health care issues. He's also editor-at-large with Christianity Today. You've also read his work, no doubt, in the Wall Street Journal and elsewhere. And he serves as communications officer to the president of World Vision. And, Rob, great to have you on the program. Well, thank you, Craig. It's great to be here. And it would seem at a certain level that the notion of there being a deeper connectivity with God would be a logical one. I mean, given the fact that he uh, breathed very life into us and that we are made in his image. That's right. That's exactly where I was about to go, was to talk about that image in Genesis where God forms the human being, forms Adam out of the dust of the ground and breathes into him the breath of life. So uh, certainly we are spirit and flesh, and our faith, our spirituality, our connections to God do not are not do not just exist in a kind of ethereal plane, but they they go down to, into who we are as as uh, physical beings, as uh, part of God's good creation. There have been some interesting studies done, and we frequently heard this from physicians, and not those with an agenda. And I put that disclaimer in there because some eavesdropping on our conversation tonight, Rob might say, well, yeah, sure, these are Christian doctors, so they're primed to prove a point. No, physicians who, who make no claim to any sort of uh, religious affiliation whatsoever, but will say that they notice something unique and different about the patients who are praying patients, and that is that the recovery rates seem to be better survival rates following uh, significant surgeries, things of this sort seem to be better. Attitudes seem to be better. There seems to be a marked connectivity between the health of one's body and one's relationship or connectivity to God. In any of your research, have you seen that borne out in any sort of a a deeper scientific fashion? Well, you know, a survey of uh, HMO executives found that 94% of them believe that prayer helps medical treatment and speeds recovery of patients. Uh, Something like 80% or higher of uh, doctors say the same thing. Uh, I think that these people, you know, and I was a a hospice volunteer myself, and and you you don't get around people who are dealing with physical illnesses who aren't also in search of um, in search of something greater, and those who have that connection uh, connection to God, who are able to um, draw on that uh, deep well of faith, 
they're able to they're able to often deal with those illnesses in a much more productive way and often that means that uh, literally you can measure their immune systems and that has an effect they're they're able to respond to disease in healthier ways people who go to church tend to tend to live longer people who um, are engaged in spiritual practices do one researcher at uh, Duke University found or he estimated that the effects of not going to church, uh, the effects of the lack of spiritual, uh, lack of uh, spiritual involvement, was a- as unhealthy for people as smoking a pack of cigarettes every day for forty years. Wow. Now we we certainly can can talk about connectivity uh, of, of the body's positive reaction to positive experiences. There are experiences that help to release serotonin, and we feel better. We have a sense of being uplifted. Things of of this sort. Have we seen some scientific connection then in that arena in terms of um, involvement in spiritual life? I'm talking about things like prayer, like praise and worship. I mean, I would imagine if from a biblical perspective, we are designed, created in his image, and to serve and worship him, that it would almost uh, go without saying that the body would have some kind of a mechanism that uh, that positively reacts when we're connecting with God at that level. Yeah, you know, uh, one of the newest and among the most successful treatments of people with depression is prayer, simple prayer. Uh, now, that doesn't mean... Uh, pray a few times and, and Jesus will heal you uh, right away, but it does mean that, you know, we tend to go immediately to the, the sort of pharmaceutical uh, uh, area in order to treat these things, but uh, one of the most common prescriptions now is for people to, to turn to prayer, and it's effective, uh, and it works, and it works because prayer is literally healthy for your brain good for your brain, for you to be engaged in a spiritual pursuit, uh, gaining uh, a sense of purpose and meaning in your life. Uh, It's healthy for your brain to be contemplating God and spend some time uh, meditating over Scripture, spend some time thinking of all that uh, Jesus, uh, especially at this time of year, came to to uh, be a human being on our earth. We can consider all the things that he he did and when we spend some time in that sort of contemplation, it's incredibly healthy for our brain. Have scientists taken the time, Rob, to, um, uh, to watch the way the brain reacts or responds to, um, for example, a praise and worship experience? I know that when I go into church and there is a, a rousing time of praise and worship. Um, it, it, it uplifts your spirit. Whatever troubles that you might have carried into the church with you from the week behind you uh, seem to just sort of melt away, and, and you, you definitely feel as if you've made a connection with God. I would wonder if scientists have ever taken the time to be able to study the brain and see what's going on at that time when people are experiencing that, that worshipful connection with God. Yeah, they sure have. And uh, one study uh, almost jokingly said uh, when people are in worship, it's as though they're uh, addicted to drugs. Uh, one of the natural brain chemicals is oxytocin, and uh, heroin actually mimics that. Uh, and so you get, a, in a sense, according to uh, the researchers, um, 
you get a sense of this spiritual high. You are um, you, you're with all of these people. There's a there's a social aspect there. Uh, you're with people that you know, people that you care about, people that you see week to week, maybe throughout the week, and that gives you a sense of uh, th- this uh, social uplift. And then connecting to connecting to God in in that kind of environment, it's a unique thing. And and uh, one of the ways that our brains are involved is through the through the production and reception of oxytocin. Uh, it's a it's a normal uh, brain chemical that helps us to to sort of feel uplifted. And um, and that seems to be one way that that our brains are designed to have that special feeling of connection to God. You know, God works in the, through physical means all, all the time when he works in our lives, and in that moment, uh, that, uh, that uh, little boost of oxytocin is one of those ways. Yeah, it's interesting. During this holiday season, so often we hear reports of people getting uh, deeper in depression. They maybe have lost a loved one during this time of the year, so it's a, it's a difficult time for them. We see higher rates of suicide amongst individuals during the holiday season. What a wonderful message of encouragement for people to understand that a relationship with Jesus Christ goes uh, well beyond not just God's concern for our our relationship to him and the afterlife, but even God's concern toward how we are doing here on earth in the here and now, and that the benefits of that personal one-on-one relationship with him go so deep and so so wonderfully connected that it can change and elevate even our mood and and, uh, the way we feel about ourselves. With us today is Rob Mole. His book is called What Your Body Knows About God, How We Are Designed to Connect, Serve, and Thrive. We'll take a time out and come back to more of our visit as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Think for a moment about the feelings that you first had when you first met your spouse, for example. Uh, there, there was something that happened deep inside of you. There was a connectivity that occurred. We are wired for intimacy, and our bodies react to it when, it, when it's right. It stands to reason, therefore, that in that same sense in which the physical part of us reacts to uh, a loved one, there is that same sense of the way in which our body reacts to intimacy with God. We are, after all, created in very God's image. I've always been fascinated by the passage early on in Jeremiah where God speaks of having known Jeremiah while he was yet in his mother's womb. And so with that thought in mind, we're exploring this topic today of what our body knows about God. And with us today is um, author and journalist uh, Rob Mole. And, and Rob, toward that end, I guess it stands to reason as much as we, we see that wonderful release of all those positive chemicals that go on in the brain when we're, when we're close to our, uh, our spouse, when we're intimate with our spouse, same thing is true then, I guess, of God. Yeah, it sure is. I mean, when when researchers put uh, put someone into a, a brain scanner, it seems kind of sacrilegious to stick someone into a, a big machine and then and then tell them to pray. But we can find out some really interesting things when when that happens. 
And one of the interesting things is that the brain is working in this in this unique way. It's uh, different than if you were having another kind of emotional experience. So they looked at people remembering uh, fond uh, fond memories of uh, of friendship, feeling perhaps even the closest sorts of friendships that they've ever had and remembering special moments. And, and then they looked at those people remembering special moments with God and what that looked like in the brain. And, and they're actually really different things. The brain's doing something different, but not something unusual or not something that the brain isn't designed to do. Uh, and one of the fascinating things is as we as we get closer to God and as we use our brain in this way to contemplate and, and meditate and pray to God, the brain is actually enhancing its, uh, its senses of compassion, sort of the brain muscles around compassion and social awareness. So as we, as we grow in our love for God, we actually grow in our love for other people. So as you, as you mentioned, you know, as we connect with people, we're also connecting with God. As we connect with God, we're also connecting with people. When you were writing this book, in the middle of this project, um, your wife went through a pretty difficult experience, um, which I, I guess made aspects of, of this book a little bit challenging. Talk to us about what was going on with your wife, uh, Clarissa. Yeah, we were about six weeks after the birth of our child, and and Clarissa started having panic attacks. I'd never seen someone with a panic attack before, but it's a, it's a frightening thing. Uh, this overpowering sense of uh, a sense of uh, that you're going to die. This sense of something is drastically wrong. Um, I need to. Uh, I, I, you know, my, my, my life is unraveling, uh, my world is unraveling, and I'm going to die any minute. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's actually a horrible thing to witness. And this was going on over and over and over again. And what we found as we, as we uh, sought help and, and talked to people and talked to experts was it's actually uh, not unusual for someone after, after birth to go through a post, postpartum anxiety or postpartum depression. Uh, so what, one of the things that was happening was that the levels of neurochemicals that she was able to use, neurochemicals like we've talked about, serotonin and, and oxytocin and things like that, were at a really, really low level. So she, she wasn't able to, to function properly. And what I, what I, what the challenge for me as I'm writing this book and writing about the, the glorious design of our bodies to be able to worship God and to, and to love others was that here, the, you know, in this sort of miraculous moment of, of birth and welcoming new life into the world, uh, we're also dealing with uh, my wife's body that had gone so drastically wrong. Uh, and I had to, I had to find, I had to seek some answers around well, how are we, what, what am I supposed to think about, especially if I'm going to continue writing this book, what am I supposed to think about our body's design when they go wrong? How am I supposed to think about God and suffering? And, and these, were, these were pretty tough questions for a while. Digging into that, and I think it was important for the integrity of the book to do so, uh, what were some of the conclusions that you were able to draw for yourself? Well, you know, you look at you look at scripture, and uh, especially at Job, and God doesn't really give Job a, a terrific answer when he when he wants to know why he went through this suffering. Uh, God essentially answers, "I'm God." 
um, and and one of the things that we see in Jesus is that uh, even Jesus suffers, uh, and not so much that that uh, God gives us an answer or, or the kind of explanation that we are seeking when we ask God about suffering, but but we see that Jesus has suffered with us. And so, as I looked, in, you know, in the in the physiology and the biology, what what is what are we supposed to? How do we make sense of this? One thing I found was that one of the healthiest things that we can do when we are suffering is actually to help other people. Uh, I talked to somebody who had gone through a similar experience of panic attacks, and uh, and he went to a, a Christian psychologist, uh, not knowing that this this woman was Christian, and she said, "Okay, your your path back to health to health is going to be to help people." And she gave him a task every Monday. She she gave him a task of, uh, you know, go to the soup kitchen, uh, help someone across the street, do these very um, very mundane but very important actions of helping another person. And that was actually his route back to health. Uh, so our bodies are designed uh, to to be helping other people, to respond to suffering. And I think that that's that was the answer for me that uh, when when humans were suffering alienation to from God, He sent His Son to die for us uh, in response. And and when when we are suffering and when we see others suffering, we're designed to respond and and alleviate that help alleviate that pain. We will find individuals that will, for example, during this time of year, uh, during the holidays, uh, suffer from one form or another of depression that in more extreme forms can certainly lead to panic attacks similar to what uh, your wife is experiencing on a postpartum basis. And it's fascinating to note how often, as you suggest, that just the very idea of getting the focus off of how you're feeling and your experience and focusing on somebody else whose circumstances or needs are, are, are bigger or more severe, how that can entirely change your outlook and suddenly you realize, wait a minute, I'm here doing all of this and engaged in helping this person, and I'm no longer feeling depressed. I, I'm, I'm no longer having to deal with the panic attacks. And it's amazing to see the way God sort of builds into our system this ability to, to do unto others that often kind times be a form of worship as well. And in doing so, all of a sudden, the body has a way of, of healing itself, doesn't it? That's right. You know, one of the one of the interesting things uh, of research recently is that you know mental health is uh, you, your mental health is best when you're not really thinking about yourself. Um, when, as C.S. Lewis talks about, you can't go around uh, looking for how can I experience joy today. Uh, you experience joy when you're finding joy in the things that you do, uh, and in the same way, mental health. Um, you know, we are healthier as people. When we are engaged, when we are concerned not for ourselves, uh, but for those around us, those who we care about, those that we are living our lives with, our family members, our friends, uh, those, those in our church communities, uh, the people at work, that's really where we find meaning and purpose and then therefore a healthy life. Rob Mole, the book called What Your Body Knows About God, How We're Designed to Connect 
serve, and thrive. Rob, thanks so much for the insights. The book, by the way, published by InterVarsity Press. You'll find it at Bay Area Christian Bookstores. Great holiday gift. Also through Amazon.com. Thanks again to uh, Rob Mole for being with us. Details, too, about his work on the web at RobMole.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Tolerance. It's a term bantied about with great abandon these days, especially by those on the left. Liberals who wish for freedom of expression and understanding for all peoples of all persuasions, hawking all agendas, eh, with the sole caveat that tolerance is tossed unceremoniously out the window when it comes to those deemed by the so-called tolerant left to be intolerant. And by intolerant, they mean pretty much anyone who doesn't tout their party line or embrace their body politic. A new book out that gives us the inside story to this issue of an attempt by the liberal left to silence everyone else. The book is called The Silencing, How the Left is Killing Free Speech. Its author, well-known political pundit, news analyst, USA Today columnist, and Fox News contributor, Kirsten Powers. Kirsten, let's talk a bit about this attack on free speech coming from kind of an unusual end of the political spectrum. I mean, aren't these the same people, the students of yesterday and the teachers of today that began the free speech movement on the Berkeley campus in the 1960s? Yes, exactly. And I I call the people in the book the liberal left to distinguish them from what I consider just the average Democrat or even your average principled liberal who still really holds firm to those ideas of tolerance and diversity and free speech that you were just referring to. Uh, and, And that's what makes, I think, what they're doing that much more troubling is because on the one hand, they still claim to value these things, while at the same time, they are using all sorts of different tactics to silence the debates, to say certain things, certain debates are over, that we aren't allowed to talk about certain things anymore. And if you do talk about them, you will be labeled with some toxic moniker that's, you know, going to make you radioactive, basically, to the rest of society. And, and how do they live with themselves in the sense, and, and, and you've had a chance to deal with both ends of the political spectrum, both as a reporter and news analyst. There's this sense, I think, that some of them are out there promoting the same kind of stereotypes that they themselves purport to hate. Right. Well, I think that, that they are able to do it because they really do believe that what they're doing is a righteous act. They, they believe that they have the capital T truth, that they know what is right and that there really is nothing to debate and so that they don't they they don't feel that there is a need to for example treat somebody who opposes same-sex marriage as anything other than a homophobe or a bigot and and so you know even though i i do support same-sex marriage i i recognize that there are people who don't that are people of goodwill and that you know and then that the best way to engage people is to um persuasion, uh, you know, rather than coercion, rather than trying to silence them. And the liberal left doesn't see it that way. They really do believe that the righteous act is to just really sort of isolate that person from society by saying, no, you know, you're, you're a homophobe and, uh, you know, we don't, we don't even need to talk to you about it. Yeah, the irony is if they believe so strongly in their position, you would think that the notion of civility and honesty in public discourse in the end would allow the, the quote-unquote truth to win out, but yet they don't apparently see it that way. And I have to wonder if there's almost a sense of, of compartmentalizing going on here. You, you resided inside of the Clinton administration as a Clinton appointee from 92 to 98. From that kind of uh, viewpoint, from the kind 
kind of the inside looking out. Is there a lot of compartmentalization that goes on? I don't I, I don't think that they really feel a need to compartmentalize because, like I said, they really do believe that they believe so strongly in what they're doing that they, they feel like that they're on the right so-called right side of history or, the, you know, the right side of the issue. And, and so that they, you know, there's, I, there's this example, this just happened last month of a, uh, Christina Hoffsummer, who's she's an AEI scholar and she came, she went to Georgetown and Overland universities in the same month to speak on what she calls equity feminism. It's her version of feminism, which is different from liberal feminism. And, you know, she was treated almost like a terrorist coming to campus. It was, you know, she had to have security and they had people there holding signs that they're trigger warnings. So they were being triggered, you know, that it's going to cause them some sort of emotional distress and danger. And there were signs for a safe room where you could go and, and be safe while she's, you know, on campus talking to the campus Republicans about her, her vision of feminism and just treating, treating differing ideas as actually dangerous. You know, that, that's, I think that that is what is, it takes it away from just your basic intolerance of, uh, I can't hear this, that it's actually posing a danger and need, and then they try to get the speeches canceled and if they can't get the speeches canceled, then they try to, they're very disruptive um, or they try to delegitimize the speaker by making them seem like they're saying these horrific things when all they're doing is expressing a different opinion. And the irony is that seems to be kind of the, out of the arsenal of, uh, of tools that they utilize seems to be some of the more popular approaches, stigmatization, uh, delegitimizing, as you're saying, sometimes even going as far as, as dehumanizing. Uh, many of your colleagues, some of which um, as, as commentators that appear on other networks, I won't mention MSNBC, uh, make much game of this sport of dehumanizing those that have differing opinions. Yeah, I mean, dehumanizing is a tactic you see in particular towards uh, conservative women or uh, non-white conservatives. So it's basically trying to turn them into, you know, non non beings. You don't even need to take them seriously. And with with conservative women, they will do it through. She's not really a woman. They don't speak for women. The only women who speak for women are pro-choice Democrats. um, That they are, you know, Bush in a skirt. Uh, there are sort of these, you know, female impersonators. These are some of the, the words that have been used to describe uh, conservative women, or they objectify them, which is another form of dehumanization. Which actually, what is so noxious about this is that it's feminists who have came up with this theory that dehumanizing, objectifying women is dehumanizing, and it's actually very effective. It's a very effective way. To, to make people not take a woman seriously. So if you focus obsessively on her body or her looks or what she's wearing, as they did with, for example, Sarah Palin, and turn her into a sex object, then voters start to you know, not see this person any longer as even a potentially serious person. They just see them as a sex object. And so these are the kind of tactics that they use, even though they say they stand for women. But what I don't understand is, and maybe you can shed some light on this, why do mainstream liberals give give sort of a get-out-of-jail-free card to some of these commentators and, and so-called news reporters who, who use this kind of language? For example, you mentioned about uh, references to people like uh, either Sarah Palin or uh, Michelle Bachman as, as bimbos. I think at one time, didn't Ed Schultz even use that yeah. demeaning term uh, directed toward you? And, and, and when it's done, the liberal left seems to look the other way. But can you imagine anyone on Fox News making 
making a reference to, say, Hillary Clinton as the um, Democrat candidate bimbo and getting away with it? No, of course not. I mean, there's a double standard. And they have started to be shamed by it. And so they have some groups have started to recognize that they have to condemn uh, condemn this when it's happening to conservative women. Though they always kind of do it in this grudging way, you know, like, oh, yeah, I guess we have to, you know, we have to stand up for this. But, you know, they're not. But but for a long time, they didn't. And a lot of them were participants in it. That's the thing. That a lot of the people who were making the misogynist attacks against Sarah Palin were self-described feminists. So, it, you know, it, it, it's and so it's, it's sometimes it's them and then other times it's sitting by, you know, while Keith Olbermann, while he was, you know, sitting atop his perch at MSNBC is doing it, whether it's Chris Matthews that is doing it. Uh, they, you know, they just sit there and they, they don't, they, they just either ignore it or they, um, you know, maybe we'll find something to complain about now and then, but it doesn't cause the full-scale hysteria that you see, like what you saw, what happened when, when Rush Limbaugh had, you know, had uh, called Sandra Fluck, you know, a slut, which he he apologized. Well, actually, I don't know if he apologized, but he was treated as if he had to, uh, you know, lose his show over that, right? You know, and this is one incident versus, continuous incidents of liberal men that are completely ignored. What's ironic about this is just how insidious and widespread all this is. As you delineate inside the pages of the silencing, we, we, we find this approach to, um, again, just the, 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 the closing down of civil dialogue, the stigmatization, dehumanization of the opposition, so to speak, that occurs not only on college campuses, as we referred to a moment ago, it's taking place uh, certainly within uh, politics, within the, the, the Democrat Party. We see it taking place in in the news arena. It's almost as if there's there's no free um, antagonizing zone where actual discourse and exchange of, of ideas can take place anymore without fearful of of suddenly coming under attack or having even your very legitimacy being questioned. Right. I think that's exactly right. Um, yeah, and I just did want to clarify that Rush, I just checked that Rush Limbaugh did apologize to her, which is like one extra step that we don't often see by the, uh, the men, uh, you know, on the left who just are doing this with in- impunity and are never are never criticized. So, you know, I do think that um, the delegitimizing that's going on, which I get into in the in the book so much, is just is such an effective tactic to uh, to avoid debate, uh, to, to to not have to, you know, somebody says something and you don't have to engage them on what they actually said. Uh, instead, you can just pick out something about them that other people are not going to like. Other people do not want to listen to somebody who, they, who they've been convinced is a racist. They do not want to listen to somebody who they've convinced, have been convinced of, is, is an Islamophobe or, you know, or a race denier, as they call the people who question the campus race statistics. And it's just kind of, they're neither conversation enders, not conversation starters. It's not encouraging robust debate. Uh, and and which is really how we get knowledge in society. Uh, instead, it's encouraging really us just accepting what a certain group of people have decided is the truth, and we're not supposed to question it. Kirsten Powers, our guest today on this edition of Lifeline. We're talking about her new book called The Silencing, How the Left is Killing Free Speech. The new book, by the way, just released by Regnery Press, available at Bay Area bookstores as well as through Amazon.com. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of our conversation with Kirsten Powers as this edition of Lifeline continues. 
And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to Lifeline. Our special guest today, well, you certainly know her as a political pundit, news analyst, USA Today columnist, and Fox News contributor, and now a new book called The Silencing. We're visiting today with Kirsten Powers. Kirsten, you relay an example of how insidious all of this is taking place on college campuses in terms of almost uh, sort of grooming students into this sense of of intolerance uh, by talking about um, Lafayette College and, and their so-called bias response team. Uh, share this example with listeners from the book, if you would, and then give us a sense of just how widespread is this mentality across campuses in America today? Well, th- these kinds of things are starting to crop up, and I expect them to probably spread, which is the idea that, you know, if you, something on campus happens that you feel was somehow offensive, you know, some sort of bias, whether it's a racial bias or, you know, gender bias or something, that you can report people for it, uh, and that it's treated as if it's uh, almost like a bodily harm that has occurred to you. And this is something that comes up throughout the, the book in, in, in various stories, which was particularly alarming to me, which was that, you know, taking offense or even just disagreement or having to see something or hear something that you don't like is really often described as a violent event. That, 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 that's the, the language that's used. I, I talk about the professor at the University of California, Santa Barbara, who physically attacked a pro-life student uh, who was part of a peaceful demonstration and told the police officer when she was arrested that she was, quote-unquote, triggered, which is a word that comes up throughout the book, uh, that, that she was triggered by having to encounter this peaceful demonstration. She shouldn't have to see something like this, that it, it, you know, this is supposed to be her safe space. This is a professor... Um, you know, who doesn't want to have to encounter a view that she doesn't like and that and treats it just the expression of the view as an attack. And so this is the mentality that we have that is spreading, which is which is that, you know, in that case, that's an outlier. Usually it doesn't involve somebody physically attacking somebody. The response, but there, there are other ways the person is then silenced because, you know, they say, well, I just, I, I can't, you know, I just, it, it was, I can't, I can't see that. I can't hear that. I can't. It's, you know, the irony is that you, when you, when you put this in context, for those of us that are old enough to remember, a, a lot of the new liberalism today, whether it be on college campuses or in the mainstream media, sounds like a lot of the old McCarthyism of the 1950s. Yes. Yeah. Very similar. And it's there's yeah there's an aspect of who you talk to also uh, is is indicative of. Of who you are versus what you say or what you think, and I experienced this actually when my book came out. When uh, I gave excerpts of the book to various publications, including the Daily Beast, which I write for and is considered a, a you know left of center, but also to a publication at the Heritage Foundation, which is conservative. And because of that, I had all these uh, liberal lefties coming after me, saying that I you know because I had allowed the Heritage Foundation to run an excerpt that I, you know, that that just proved that I was a right-wing hack and my book was <laughs> somehow backed by the Heritage Foundation. Some, you suddenly you're just, a shill for the left, or for the right, right rather. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but, but never mind that, like, I ran excerpts in the Daily Beast. You know what I mean? It doesn't, it's just, they, they just look for some kind of relationship that they can use to prove that you're a secret, you know, closet conservative. I have a bunch of examples in the book of how they really use this against journalists to scare journalists to, into 
not pursuing stories because they will be accused of being closet conservatives because they are investigating the Obama administration or they're investigating Republicans. But if they investigate, uh, you know, the the right the, the right people, then uh, then they're gonna if they investigate Republicans, they're gonna be fine. But if they investigate Democrats, they're not. So you'll have people like Cheryl Atkinson, who award-winning investigations of both parties. But all you'll hear about from the liberal left is how she investigated the Obama administration, and therefore she's this, she's literally this partisan, uh, you know, conservative hack. You know, the irony is this agenda, though, just bubbles so 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 uh, close to the surface, it's, it's unbelievable. I mean, for example, uh, Chris Hayes recently did what he called a Hillary Clinton study guide for millennials, where he touted all the wonderful things that she had apparently had done before most of them, quite frankly, had ever even been born. And yet, can you imagine if, say, Fox News attempted to do a, a new millennials guide to Ben Carson, what, what, what kind of response you would see from the left? Right. Well, that's total double standard. I mean, you can't. There's, there, you know, there's this idea that uh, you know they spent all this time. I have a whole chapter on it, trying to delegitimize Fox News. Uh, the White House did, saying you know they're not a real news organization, and uh, and and telling other news organizations that they shouldn't treat them as real news organizations. And meanwhile, MSNBC is doing this times a million. You know, and and I'm not. I actually, I think MSNBC is free to do that. I don't. And if and if, the, and if George Bush had ever come out and said they weren't legitimate, I would have been the first person to defend them. You know, I don't. I think that they they're they're, they're free to you know have have whatever kind of program they want to have. And uh, and I and I don't think that that means that you know if Chris Hayes does something on one show that uh, you know a reporter or a host of another show is somehow held accountable for that, right? I mean, it's like the same way like they try to merge everything at Fox together. It's like, well, because there's Sean Hannity, then that means that Brett Baer can't be trusted. Well, those two things have nothing to do with each other. You know, they're completely different shows. And um, and one is an expressly an opinion show. And so, yeah, there's, just not, there's an absolute double standard where you had Obama administration officials leaving and going to work for MSNBC after the same people who said that Fox was not a legitimate news organization. Help us understand something here. Um, how much of this, in your opinion, is, is just based on that sense of unfamiliarity breeding contempt? In other words, that it's easy to either dislike or hate what you don't know or don't understand. So many people, particularly for the, the, the political world inside the Beltway, don't have an opportunity to really get to know, quote-unquote, the enemy or the other side. And so as a result, because of that, that sense of ignorance, we'll call it, uh, that, that, that they sort of have this 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 deepening abiding sense of acrimony shown toward those who don't share the same opinion yeah yeah i think that there's i, I there's definitely an element of that it's very hard to sustain these the, the these ideas for example that every single person who opposes same-sex marriage is a homophobe if you actually have friends or people that you're close to who have sincere religious beliefs that lead them to oppose same-sex marriage, and, and you can see, you know, that they, they aren't homophobes. I'm not saying that the person's never a homophobe, but I'm just saying that that's, you know, that, that, at least in my experience, the people that I know, that that's not what's driving them. What's driving them is a religious belief. So I do think there's that. Um, but I don't, the, the problem with the liberal left is they really aren't interested in, <laughs> in knowing people who are different than them, and they, because they are so convinced that they are right, that they, it just does not seem to have occurred to them that, uh, that they could be wrong. But, you know, I used to be 
pretty closed-minded, and I was definitely, you know, I'd worked in the Clinton administration, Democratic politics, very liberal family, and uh, I had a lot of these these ideas as well that I had it all figured out. And basically, working at Fox News, and, and then later in life, conversion to Christianity, where I started being around, obviously, a lot of Christians and more conservatives, I, you know, it did slowly break down my my prejudices, frankly. I mean, they were prejudices. Uh, where I could, you know, I didn't necessarily change my political views, but I was able to see, oh, you know, there is a debate to be had here. Uh, there are things to talk about, and, and th- these are legitimate views. They're just different than mine. So at the end of the day, while it's it's often kind of surprising to see how closed-minded so many so-called open-minded liberals really are, there is hope. And, 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 and I think sometimes the opportunity to the degree to which it's possible, and I'm just thinking about people that are engaged in the day-to-day business of going about uh, their affairs, to engage with people in mm-hmm. a loving, legitimate, intellectual fashion concerning the issues of the day, not with heated exchange and raised voices, but just just an, an open-minded exchange of ideas can sometimes eventually bring people around to another point of view. I think so, yeah. It, it's often slow, so I think people get discouraged. Uh, you know, I think it's not, it's not like you're going to meet somebody one time and that's going to happen, but I do think over time, and I've had a lot of friends tell me that, it's, you know, knowing me also has just changed their views on some things, or even, you know, they have their their ideas about what a liberal is like or what a liberal thinks, and, and you know, so I think, you know, it's been beneficial in both directions. Well, the book certainly is very engaging in helping us to not only better understand what's taking place here, the dynamic between the two sides, so to speak, but also, I think, uh, uh, gives us a sense of hope that we can engage in some dialogue and eventually see some change. Kristen Powers, the book is called The Silencing, How the Left is Killing Free Speech. The book, published by Regnery Press, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as through Amazon.com. And, of course, Regnery Press, a part of the company that owns this fine radio station. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved.